But by the time we got back there, it was almost nightfall. And our guard said, there's no way we can drive back to the city at this time of night. It's just far too dangerous on the streets. Uh, we had people who were getting flights the following day and they were saying, can we get another guide? But we were really in the middle of nowhere here. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. Trying to help you find adventure every day in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. So back in 2017, episode 330, we talked to Ali France about his 108-day journey along the spine of Asia. And I should have used it as this week's uh, throwback episode, but I'm going to use it for next week's most likely. Um, and, and it includes, it's basically the story about his book, which is called The Trail of the Mountain Folk, where he was a kitchen salesman, hated life, uh, was getting ready to get married and wanted to do something in the middle of a big house renovation on top of all that and decided to take 108 days to do something absolutely crazy. And it sounds like uh, it's totally changed his life. So today we're hearing from him what, what life has been like since. Uh, but briefly, he has gone on to guiding trips, guiding adventures all over the world for people. Uh, he's a carpenter when he's home on the side, just uh, I'm sure as a way to decompress and just not have to think about all these logistics all the time, but also specializes in taking people and himself to really hostile environments, which Sounds crazy, but uh, you can tell he's a hundred percent professional, and I would one day love to go on an adventure with him. I hope you uh, took our challenge yesterday and decided to share the show with at least one person. With just one person, that's the challenge. Not at least, just one person. Tell somebody about the show. We think this show is an awesome show. You know, we're a little biased, but you're taking some precious time of your life to listen to it. So thank you for that, and. Share it with somebody. You know, these stories help get me through the week. I imagine it helps get you through the week too. Today's sponsors, CS Instant Coffee. If you need convenient, high quality coffee to take with you on your adventures, go to csinstant.coffee and use adventure at checkout. You're going to love it. As well as Athletic Brewing, a great way to keep your promises, whether that's through trading or through sobriety, but still being able to enjoy the taste of a great craft beer because they're non-alcoholic. Discount with them, also Adventure, athleticbrewing.com. I think you get 20% off for both of those, 15 or 20%. Not bad. Anyway, let's let's go ahead and get into the interview. All right, folks, well, welcome to the show. Uh, today, we are talking to uh, an adventurer. He's a guide. He speaks. Um, he's got a great voice. I've already listened to it a little bit. Um, he's a professional expedition leader, and, and he specializes in doing adventures in hostile and unusual places. Ali France, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Mason. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. And I know we were just talking a little bit before, but uh, you just got back from a trip. You're getting ready to do another one. But yeah, yeah I kind of you mentioned. A mountain guide and speaker and a, and a lead professional expedition leader. Is that what you do full time? It is. It is really. Yeah, I've sort of built this very unusual career where I've pulled together a number of different interests and just about over the last four years managed to turn that into 
into a pretty solid, if unusual, career. So, yeah, I find myself overseas maybe four or five months of the year and get to travel pretty much every month, which is which is really cool. Uh, when I'm back home, I'll try and do a bit of speaking if I get the opportunity. And I also run a small carpentry workshop and make and sell some various bespoke items, which sort of keeps me ticking over in between uh, the, uh, the adventures. But yeah, since applying myself to this career, it's, it's really taken off and very lucky to have a lot of adventures throughout the year. Does it work out pretty well? It does. I mean, just to, I guess, give a, a little bit of backstory. Yeah, I've got to the, I've got to the stage where, yes, it is, um, it is just about working out for me. I've, I've got a sustainable income and that's, that's great because that was, I, I kept, I got to the point where I quit a pretty good job, a full-time career where I had, you know, decent salary, company car, you know, bonus schemes and quite a lot of perks. I really gave that all up to pursue this life of adventure. And it has taken four years of really hard work of, of really pushing myself outside my comfort zone, doing some, doing some scary things along the way, doing some big adventures, putting myself out into the world. And, but after four years, it has got to the stage where it's starting to pay dividends and I'm able to, I mean, it, it looks like my foreseeable future will involve lots more travels and adventures. Wow. Well, congratulations. I know that's, I know from personal experience, it's very hard to do. Um, so that, that's just fascinating. Um, but it, it, it yeah. looks like, uh, you know, you wrote a book about this one experience where you quit that job. I think that's the job you quit in 2015. That's right. And, and you were in the middle of a house renovation and just a couple yeah. of months away from getting married and you decided to go on this crazy adventure I want to talk about. <laughs> what, what, what was the adventure and what the heck, why, why then? What, what was all that about? Well, you're absolutely right. The timing could definitely not have been worse. <laughs> um, as you say, I, I was midway through this house renovation. I had the luxury of a full-time income and, uh, you know, a, a company car and all that sort of thing. But the, the real issue was, one, I was, I was working as a kitchen salesman and I was hopeless at selling kitchens. So that was, that was a big issue. And it was probably getting to the stage where if I didn't quit my job, I probably would have got sacked anyway. But the real reason for that was I just wasn't passionate about it. Um, I just wasn't, I didn't. It didn't keep me occupied in my mind, and I found myself sort of, you know, sitting around just questioning what I was doing. And I thought, you know what, it's now or never. I can see that my life isn't playing out the want the way I wanted it to. I'd always made a promise to myself that I didn't want to live a nine to five conventional lifestyle, and I felt like I, would, I was breaking that promise to myself. And so, even though you know I was in that situation, I was as you say, a few months away from my wedding day, I was quitting a full-time job with no prospect of future work. I had a major house renovation ongoing, and I knew that if I was going to go and start a big adventure, I'd need to do a lot of fundraising to actually pull it off. But I thought, it's now or never. I've got to do it, and I'm going to go for it 100%. And the challenge I set for myself was to travel overland from Hong Kong to Istanbul in the middle of winter, traveling by any means along the mountainous spine of Asia. And I wanted to climb at least one mountain in each country visited. And, um, and so um, in January 2016, I landed in Hong Kong with, um, with, you know, a lot of uncertainties, but one absolute goal in mind, which was I would not fly home. I would not call, call it a day 
until I'd reached my destination on the opposite end of Asia in Istanbul. And uh, it, it became a truly transformative experience and journey which challenged me, which pushed me to my limits in terms of my resilience, in terms of seeing something through to the end. But having having given up so much to get to that stage, I knew that the stakes were high. I'd put so much pressure on myself that my mantra was, I just cannot afford to fail. If I'm going to make a career out of this, you know, failing on my first big expedition would mean I'm going to have to go back to back to what I hated. And so success really was my only option, despite the many the many pitfalls and dangers and, and um, challenges which I came up against. And, you, you know, I know you've been on the show uh, the before. This was before I was the host for episode 330, which was uh, yeah. a couple years ago. Um, but I, I don't know if this was asked. What, what did the people around you say when you decided to do that, especially <laughs> like, you know, your future wife? <laughs> <laughs> well, she would be a key person in that, yeah, in that uh, particular question. She, well, it got to the stage where she saw that the job I was doing was making me really miserable. It was taking, it was almost taking my, my love and excitement for life out of me. And so it was sort of a compromise, really. It was, she wanted to see me happy and, and living life the way I should be living it again. And so I'm very, very, very lucky to have an extremely supportive wife. And, and she said, you know, if you absolutely feel you need to do this and you feel you can make it work and you feel it's going to be worthwhile, then you go for it. And, you know, I thank her so often for, for giving me that support because it, it has allowed me to, um, to completely change my life. And I've got, of course, the bonus of having a, uh, a beautiful and very supportive wife who sticks with me and she's um, a massive inspiration and motivation of mine too. Yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> that is priceless to have uh, a supporter and a partner like that, especially when they know how hard it was on you, uh, in your old job. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, that job was bringing you down before that job, were you doing things like this or were you, you know, you said you were happier and were more fulfilled. What, what were you doing before then? I was. So I, I sort of grew up in this Northern town playing conventional sports, football and rugby league. It's, right. a, it's a traditional rugby league town, which I know it's not, not such a popular sports over in the States, but here it's, it's quite a big thing. We had a really good team, but at the age of 17, I went and had my first rock climbing experience and instantly just fell in love with the adrenaline of it. And this was another transformative moment where I got back from that trip and decided on something of a whim that I'm going to apply to study outdoor leadership in a three-year degree course, pretty much based on that one weekend. Um, so that, that was a big step, but I, I ended up going studying outdoor leadership, which, believe it or not, is a real degree. And... and um, that was just the most extraordinary experience. I spent three years learning lots about the academic and environmental and leadership and teaching and um, risk assessment and expedition planning side of, of adventure travel and also got some instruction off some of the best climbing and canoeing and kayaking guides in, in the UK. And then in the long university summers, I would go and I went and worked in America in a sports camp 
the next year I, I wanted to push it a little bit further so I, I'd spent some time learning some Arabic and wanted to go and travel out to Beirut in Lebanon and live there for a month just to just to really push myself and see see what the world is like in a, in a completely unusual place for me. Um, went and worked in Uganda, went and did a, a year's traveling at the end of university where I worked in Australia and traveled around New Zealand and Southeast Asia. And it's then that I got home and sort of checked my bank balance and thought, oh dear, I better get a proper job here. <laughs> and, uh, but of course, the, the, the one unfortunate thing of experiencing all those incredible things overseas was you get a certain addiction for it, as I'm sure you know. And it's very hard to step away from that completely. And so I, I always I always had in the back of my mind that that's what I wanted to get back to. I can see how selling kitchens would be totally <laughs> freaking miserable <laughs> compared to yes. some of those experiences <laughs> that you had and how you would obviously, yeah, you, I'm sure you customers are like, you know, what color cabinet do you think goes well with this carpet <laughs> or this countertop? And you're probably like, I don't give a crap what color countertop yeah. you have. <laughs> oh man, that's it. Yeah, and I, you know, you had those experiences and you had lots of, uh, let's just say really could be really pivotal moments of, of danger, of challenge, of, uh, uh uncertainty. And it, it seems like in a lot of ways, that's part of what you fell in love with. That first thrill of rock climbing led to some of these other, you know, big, big thrills. And, uh, and now you say you specialize in unusual destinations and also hostile uh, destinations. Where did that come about? Like, I guess having the confidence to not only take yourself, but other people. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right that sort of getting getting used to traveling to such places on my own was was a key part in me actually finding work and, and feeling confident to lead groups to such places but um probably one of those turning points was as i briefly mentioned when i when i visited lebanon and stayed in beirut for a month at the age of 20 i traveled there on my own i learned a little bit of arabic um and i really just wanted to head out into what was a pretty uncertain and familiar part of the world and see, actually see what it's like. Because I find that, you know, don't want to get political or anything, but you hear so much, so much bad, bad news, bad press about certain places, including Lebanon, various other Middle Eastern countries, war-torn states. And this is, this of course is the focus point. But what I found very quickly is, there are millions of people in that country going about their daily lives, uh, starting up businesses, building relationships, having families, living completely ordinary lives. But of course, that's not very newsworthy. And so you don't really hear about it. So what I was really interested in, it was heading out to those places and just seeing what they're like for myself, going, making my own judgments. And, um, and, and the other thing I found was, um, I think it's harder and harder to be a true explorer these days. Um, so much of the world has been covered. So much of it has been documented. But where I find the, the cutting edges is actually in a lot of these places which have been off limits due to war or dictatorships or conflicts. And yet they hold some of the most incredible unseen places on our earth. And for me, it's been a real privilege to to 
be really ambitious, set some ambitious challenges and go and explore some of those places where I really do feel like I'm one of very few people who's, who's actually set eyes on, on those places. You know, you bring up a good point. Um, you know, the news portrays a place as, as one way. And I'm sure when you told people the place you were going, it, it caused a lot of uh, anxiety for them, the people that loved you. Mm. You have a story about one of the a big misconception with that, where you realize, you know, people are just living normal lives here. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could um, I, I could pull out a story here. My first, so a couple of years ago, went once I'd I'd led a couple of overseas trips, and I was asked by one of my employers if I wanted to go and lead um, a tour to Iraq. And th- this wasn't an expedition necessarily. This was. This was sort of a cultural tour across northern Iraq. And of course, I had my doubts, but I trusted that this particular region would be safe and that we had some really good contacts there and decided to go for it. And of course, it's the first time I'd ever visited. I touched down in the country. And um, and what followed was just the most incredible experience. And it's it's become a part of the world which I've really fallen in love with. It, it's one of the most hospitable uh, welcoming places and I've got to the stage now where I feel far more comfortable in in uh, it's the northern Kurdish part of Iraq than I do in somewhere like you know a busy part of London where where it feels far more tense at times um, and I remember one particular occasion where it sort of hit home how you know just the most bizarre and ordinary and, and exciting <laughs> unusual things can happen where I was sitting down at, uh, at the end of the trip, all, all the clients had gone home and I was I was with my guide having lunch and he got a phone call and uh, he was sort of on the phone and, and looking at me up from his dinner and and sort of smiling a little bit and he put his phone down and said, um, have you ever been interested in doing any acting work? And I sort of <laughs> laughed and said, well, I've never really thought about it. And he said, I've, I've got some friends on the phone who work for an advertising agency and they're looking for the next star of an Iraqi chickpea commercial. <laughs> and, um, my flight was leaving in about three hours. But sure enough, in 20 minutes later, these advertising guys came over to the restaurant. We had a quick chat and then we were whizzed across the city into a skyscraper, taken, taken up to the top floor. I was whisked into this um advertising agency office everybody's shaking hands offering me drinks it's just the most surreal experience i'm putting in front of a green screen photographed asked to speak to camera and uh, they actually offered me uh, they actually offered me this role <laughs> at the end of this the whole thing had taken about an hour unfortunately i, I really needed to get back but i said um, i'm sorry guys if, if we can do it next tuesday i'm in um unfortunately i never i never got the call but that that was a wake up call, you know. Just um, it's it's not all terror, it's not all uh, horror. It's um, ordinary ordinary lives and ordinary people and ordinary things. And um, for me, it's it's become one of my absolute addictions, going to find out more about these countries and um, and see what adventures they hold. So we want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Brewing, for promoting a healthy lifestyle through making some of the world's best non-alcoholic craft beer. They make excellent tasting NA for healthy, active, modern adults. They use certified all-organic grains, 
And each can of non-alcoholic beer is only between 50 and 70 calories. They have IPA, golden ale, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings. And recently, they actually just took home the gold medal at the U.S. Open Beer Championships for their Double Hop IPA. If you would like to get your hands on some, you can save 15% by using the code ADVENTURE at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic Brewing, the best tasting way to keep your promises. And I also want to thank our sponsor, CS Instant Coffee, for making this show happen. They make 100% Arabica Instant Coffee. They use compostable packaging, and each package makes about 20 ounces of coffee. So I'll take one of those with me on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. And it's an awesome feeling knowing I can just throw that in my backpack, find some hot water, and I'm good to go. Save 20% by using the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee. That's awesome. You know, on this show, we talk to a lot of uh, people who are cycling around the world, and I read a lot of blogs from people who are spending years traveling, and it's so incredible how many people, when they rank like their most incredible and favorite experiences, Iraq and Iran are usually at the top if they have traveled Mm. much of the world, Uh, I guess because expectations going in versus what the reality is are so different that it causes them just to have this unbelievably wonderful and beautiful experience with the people there. And it's just amazing to hear you reiterate that once again. I mean, it's, I I totally agree with you that, you know, visiting a place can just totally diminish uh, all those false expectations you might have. That's, that's great. And so, you you know, that was a good experience. Are are there ever times you take groups, you know, because that takes a lot of guts on your end to be able to say, yeah, I've never been, but I'm taking other people there, and we're going to have a good time and stay safe. Yeah, uh, d- has it ever gone to where you were you were afraid yourself for you and your group? Uh, there have certainly been challenges. Yes, right. And I can I, there there are a number of stories I can tell on this theme for sure where we've got into. I don't want to hurt some... business. I don't want to hurt business. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's um, it's all part. It's all part of the travel experience. Shall we say? But I, there's certainly a story which I can pick up on, which, which, um, which was in Iraq actually, and um, so I talked about this first tour that I'd been asked to lead, and as I've mentioned, I'm interested also in finding adventure in these unusual places. So I led the week-long cultural tour, and at the end of that, I wanted to, I'd, I'd done some research, I'd made some contacts, and I wanted to go up onto the, near the Iranian border and go and attempt to climb the highest mountain in Iraq, um, which the name of this mountain is Halgird. It's a remote 3,600-meter snowy peak, and it was still just on the uh, just at the end of winter, so it was, it was going to be snowy up there. There are very few groups which visit there. I know that there are occasionally militia groups in, in the area, and indeed that around the mountain there are a number of active minefields left by Saddam Hussein in the 80s. So it was quite an ambitious goal. But the, the ultimate objective was for me to go and climb this, do a recce on the mountain, and then go back the following year with, with the group. And um, I remember turning up in this, in this town at the, at the foot of the mountain, 
and we had my guide had taken me there and we were sort of walking walking the streets feeling a little bit tense we'd been stopped at a few checkpoints on the way and it was late at night and i remember walking along this street we'd gone out to find some find somewhere to eat and there was a guy in front of us walking with this strange kind of swagger the youngish looking guy and we got to with him about two meters behind him and he spun on his heels and aimed a handgun directly at my chest and then and then shifted it over to my guide and we just totally froze we were too far away from him to try and bat the gun away but there was nowhere to run nowhere to hide and after a, what what felt like an hour but was probably just a few seconds the the light caught this gun and I noticed that it was actually a fake handgun and then I looked up at this guy's face and he's just got a smile on his face it's just a joking teenager but oh <laughs> given <gosh>. where we were <laughs> given where we were and it was late at night and I know there are militia groups there I have to say that was pretty scary um, and um, my guide sort of told him off and but we we did have a good laugh about it afterwards but we we um, we did actually go and climb the mountain successfully, uh, myself and the guide. And so I set about building an expedition to to go back there. And so three months ago, March 2019, I went back there with a small international team of clients having marketed the trip. And so we, we had a small team of three from three different countries. And the aim was to go back to this mountain and try to do a, a commercial summit and make it to the summit. And um, as I say, one of one of the main challenges of this mountain is, of course, the fact that there are a number of minefields around around the base of the mountain. So what I did was hire the same guide again, who's the most probably the most experienced mountain guide in Iraq. He navigated us carefully through these minefields um, on on the opening couple of days, which are marked by these pretty ominous looking red signs with skulls and crossbones on them. Uh, but in, in good conditions, it's absolutely fine. You can navigate through them. I also had a GPS with our exact route from the previous year, had a map and compass, and we were totally confident that we could navigate around them. And so we, we ascended for two days. But there'd, there'd been a lot of storms over the recent days, and there was a, um, a lot of snow on the mountain. And part of my I've got a couple of mountain guiding qualifications here in the UK and a part of my training for that was learning about avalanche risk. And so I was digging avalanche pits out into the mountain and checking for the avalanche risk. And, and what I found was quite unsettling. There was a thick, hard layer of um, wind-blown snow on top of a, a soft layer of what's called graupel, which is like slippery polystyrene balls. So if you kind of imagine a slab of granite weakly bonded to a layer of ball bearings, it's just a, a fatal uh, combination. And of course, if you if you extrapolate that to a slope and you add extra weight and fractures to that top snowpack, the entire thing can slide. And so I was lying in my tent the day before, the night before we were due to due to go for the summit, and I briefed my team that we'd be leaving at 4 a.m., bags packed, ready to go for the summit. And then, of course, I've, I've got on my mind the fact that to ascend this mountain, we need to climb this uh, pretty steep 500-meter uh, gully up the east face of the mountain and onto the summit. And I knew that once we commit to this gully, 
there are no escape routes, uh, just steep rocks at either side. And for us to ascend safely, the, the, the snow conditions needed to be absolutely perfect. And honestly, this gully had given me bad dreams for months. And I knew that with the, the snow conditions, it was really looking dangerous. But then as a leader, you have in the other part of your mind the fact that the team had been doing really well. They'd cope with the challenges incredibly well. They had shown themselves to be really, really fit and committed. And they'd all spent good money and time to be here and try and achieve this goal, which was now just a few hours away. And so I definitely felt the sense that night that I had the weight of 18 months of planning and potentially the lives of four people resting on my shoulders. Does that stress you out? I'm just sorry to interrupt. Yes. <laughs> I just, that's got to just keep you up at night. It did keep me up at night, absolutely. I didn't, I, I barely got any sleep, um, maybe, yeah, barely any sleep. And all I could think about was, what am I going to decide to do? Do I pull the plug on this? Do we go for it? Am I being too cautious? Because there are no other teams out on the mountain. There's nobody been here for, for weeks. There are no avalanche forecasts I can, I can read from other people. There's nobody else I can speak to who, who knows, you know, in, within the team who's been trained on avalanche risk. Um, I've got to make this decision entirely on my own. And we're up in a very remote place where the possibility of rescue would be days away potentially. And the, the consequences of an accident would be pretty catastrophic. And so it really was, a, you know, a, quite a stressful night. But I woke up that morning we, I said, we'll trek to the base of this gully. I'll do one more avalanche test and then I'll make my final call. And we trekked out. I had a look at, again at snowpack. It, it contained the same features. And um, at, the mo at that time, it was, it, there was a blizzard happening. All the warning bells were going off in my mind. And what I said to the group was, if I was here on my own, I would be turning back right now. And so that's what we're going to do as a team. Um, but what I found is by bringing them inside my decision-making process as we were on the journey, they accepted, they were more than accepted my decision and uh, were absolutely happy to, to have had a brilliant experience but not reach the summit. Um, I wish I could say that that was the end of that experience, but as we began to descend down this mountain, we went back to the tents, packed them up, and, and I said, we need to get off the mountain. We know that there's a, it looks like there's a, a storm coming in now. And we've, you know, if we stay here, we're going to run out of food. So we need to get down off the mountain. And uh, because of this incoming blizzard, all of our footsteps, footprints in the snow have been, have been covered in. And of course, that meant descending down the mountain, not being able to follow the, those footprints, which weaved through the minefields back to the car. So, the local guide set off in front. I'd hired him because he knows the mountain better than anybody. But we got to a stage on the descent where my sort of internal compass was just saying, we're going in the wrong direction here. And so I stopped, checked the GPS, and sure enough, we were going in the wrong direction. And, and then I had a bit of a discussion with, with the guides. I showed him my compass and slightly alarmed when he said, what's that? He'd, he'd never seen a compass before. And, um, 
Uh, oh he, he, he repeated many times how much he hated the fog and the clouds. But anyway, I, uh, I took a bearing and thought, I know where our path was from the previous days, which is before where the minefields are on the mountain. So all we can hope to do is take a bearing which directly goes across that path and hope to find our footprints there. Because otherwise, we're, we're going to be navigating in almost zero visibility. I mean, it's less than five meters visibility. Uh, such bad visibility, I can't even tell what angle of the slope is that I'm walking on. Um, and so I'm kicking snowballs out in front of me to see which way they roll to make sure I'm not going to walk off a cliff or something. And fortunately, I took this bearing. It was quite slow going in really bad conditions, but we found just the faintest mark of our footsteps. And thankfully, we could follow those through the minefields and back to the car. But I have to say, when I found those, uh, when I found those footprints, I uh, I did a minor celebration because it, it could have um, it could have been a pretty scary and pretty arduous route back to the car. Um, so there's an example of uh, a slightly more stressful experience. <laughs> wow. Now, now, is there ever a time you get back from one of those and say, I, I cannot wait to go build a bookshelf or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, woodwork is yeah, definitely therapeutic. But I mean, yeah, what's what's very strange is you, it's just such the, these experiences are just so intense and so obscure and so difficult to relate to any aspect of ordinary life. I, I do still find it strange to come back home. And, you know, the classic thing is walk around the supermarket and see what, decide what cereal you want or be caught up in a conversation. You, you see your family for the next time and sort of they ask, oh, how was your trip? And, you know, maybe withhold some of the details and then moving on to the conversation of what happened, what happened, you know, um, at work the other day for, for, for somebody else. Um, it's, it's, it is quite a contrast. But, um, I mean, these, these are all fantastic stories, which, uh, definitely, definitely allow you to, to grow and learn more about yourself and your, your comfort zones. And, um, it's, it's, it is, it is, it remains an addiction to, to finding out where that line is for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I just, I just can't imagine coming back from that and, and, talking to a customer about a table or something and, <laughs> and just knowing a week ago you were avoiding minefields with these people from all over the world in a country that's, you know, a, a world away. And just having to process all that constantly has to be kind of fun to internally have that dialogue going on, knowing they have no clue. Well, it, it um, I mean, with that, with that particular, with that particular situation, there was a lot of reflection, you're right, and I did spend spend a lot of time dwelling on that decision that I made in the in that tent that night because I you know, I I very much knew how big of a decision that was. I was effectively taking away from my team the the goal that they'd been working towards for so long. But I've spoken to other experienced mountain guides since, talked them through the, the snow conditions that I'd observed. Uh, thought about it a lot and you know what makes me happy as as a leader is the fact that I'm very very confident that I made the right decision and and furthermore when when I first met the group 
I outline what my two goals were for the expedition. And the order of these goals is really important. I said, number one, we're here undertaking a really challenging goal. So my number one objective is to get everyone home safely. And my number two objective is to climb the mountain. And as I say, the, the order of those goals is, is, um, is really important. And what did it for me was at the end of that trip, all three members of the expedition team have, have talked about joining me for a future expedition and, you know, continuing in with future journeys. And, and, um, the other thing that of course occurred to me with that is if you, it's already an extremely challenging thing to go and try and do. So if you push people, if you make it more dangerous than it needs to be, if you frighten people, they're never going to want to come back on an expedition with me. They're not going to have a satisfying, rewarding experience. Right. But we can know as a team that we've pushed ourselves, we've done our best, but ultimately mountains are mountains and you've got to respect them. And we made the right decision. That's, uh, yeah, the mountain's going to be there. And I guarantee they did not sign up to be put in incredibly dangerous situations. They've been, they've signed up to be put in, you know, adventurous situations, but yeah, it's, it's your call Absolutely. to, to be able to do that. Now, not only the weather and the mountains and the conditions, but also the areas, all that combined can create mm. situations that are pretty intense compared to other guiding services or, or other guides have to deal with. Does that ever cause you to say, I just can't keep doing this? <laughs> it's too um, stressful. <laughs> well, it de- I, I mean, I, there are definitely things I wouldn't do. There are lots of things I've considered and then I've thought, no, that's just too crazy. That's that's just a step oh, yeah? too far. And so I do definitely have my limits. You know, I'm not uh, – I- <laughs> people might disagree. People listening to this might disagree, but I don't think I'm totally crazy. <laughs> um, but one thing that I do do more, you know, uh, to a very high degree is I plan and I plan and I plan to all eventualities. So I can give you an example of that for, for this expedition. I knew that there were the minefields around the mountain. And so I need, needed to have an exceptional plan to make sure I was extremely confident that they could be avoided. And so here's the process I go through. I, number one, I had the most experienced guide who could navigate us around the minefields. But then in my mind, I'm thinking, what if he gets lost? I've then got a GPS with our exact route saved from the previous year. But what if the battery dies on the GPS? I've then got a map and compass, which I can use to navigate and which I've been quite highly trained uh, in navigation to do that. But what if the the map blows out my hand and down the mountain? I then know we can turn on our heels and follow our footsteps back to the car on the low reaches of the peak. But what if, in the worst case scenario, we do end up in a minefield and somebody gets injured? I've got a comprehensive first aid kit in my rucksack. I'm first aid trained. I've got a satellite phone. We can call our local fixer with a 4x4. He can come to our location. Or we can call in a helicopter if we're too remote. I've then got a list of all the nearest and best hospitals, along with evacuation plans and next of kin details, so that I'll know exactly what to do if something goes wrong. And it really, what what going to these places is all about as a leader, for, for sure, is planning and preparation and having backups and having safety procedures in place. And if at any point you think 
there's a gap in this in this safety procedure. So if something something could happen here, which I feel is out of my control, then I'll call the whole thing off and I'll go back to the drawing board and try a different idea. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not just accidental that we got ourselves out of that situation. It was through planning and having proper uh, commands in place. Yeah, man, that's that's the side of it that a lot of people don't don't see and uh, frankly don't want to deal with. You know, yeah, I'm sure you see some people who don't operate to that level. Yeah, yeah, you certainly you certainly do, and I'm really I'm I'm here to to have adventures for a long time, and so I, I very much enjoy my life at the minute, and I wouldn't risk doing anything um, which which I felt was outside of my control. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. So, so I know you've had, you know, uh, like you had that. Being you were at gunpoint, ended up being a fake gun, but it very could have easily been a real gun, and you end yeah. up taking a group to that same area uh, in the next trip. Do, do you like to go back to the same places and have the same sort of experiences so you can get to know the place? And if so, do, do you try to go check it out yourself first? I mean, I do like. I'd like to explore new places, of course, and I, I'm very lucky to, to travel to lots of new destinations and lead teams to places that I haven't been to before. But if if I've not already been to that country and done a reconnaissance trip, then somebody else will have, one of my colleagues will have, they'll have been out into that country, they'll have established a, a network of, of local contacts, they'll have done lots of research everything will be in place i'll be presented with lots of information that i need to know and then i can go out and carry out the expedition whether i personally or somebody else has wrecked it before and and that that's really important thing to do there are a couple of other things that i personally do i really monitor the situation in the country to get a feel for it and there are there are a couple of ways of doing that that I find useful. You can use the governments, uh, various governments. I know the State Department has one. Foreign Commonwealth Office have have one. It, it's like a travel travel advice service where they'll give you advice on every country across the world, what the risks are, what the dangers are, if they think it's safe to go there, if they advise against you going there. So that's one tool. Um, another really useful tool, perhaps, which is much more specific, actually, and, and up to date, is a brilliant website called UA Live Map. And I've no, I've no connections with them, but I, I do think it's a very useful website for people to use, especially if you're going to uh, a potentially hostile country. But that will have up to the minute details on on any terror or crime related problems within any given country so you can see what's happening in different areas and just get a good sense of 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 that area and if it's particularly hot if it's particularly dangerous at that time then it's not unusual for us to cancel trips if we feel the risk is too high and again having a good network of local contacts who are well connected that really helps because they can feed back information on what what uh, the situation's like there and if they feel it's too dangerous, we listen to them and we, we take their word for it. So, I mean, yes, we, we do have lots of measures in place to make sure that we're not taking unnecessary risks. Definitely know what you're doing because, uh, you know, we, we talk to people who are guides and, you know, that's obviously a certain level of risk. But when you're 
kind of specializing in taking the people to these unique places where there isn't as many resources. You really have to know, 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 know what you're going. And, and how many places, yeah. how many countries have you led people? Uh, I've, I've personally visited over 60 countries and um, now led groups through 16 countries um, across, mainly across Asia and Africa. So, oh my gosh, 16 yeah, that, countries. Yeah, that's that's just over the last three years, and um, so got got quite a few more in in the pipeline. Holy cow! So business is going well. It's good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, like I say, it's not it's not all mine. I, I work for three different companies, one of which I co-founded. Two others employ me to lead various trips. So yeah, business is good. I can't complain. Wow, man, that's uh, 16 countries in three years and 60 countries um, yourself. That's a lot of travel, yeah. and uh, that's a lot of time away from home. What what has been, been one of your favorite trips in the last three years that you've led, and what's been something that has been, oh, I don't care to ever repeat that again? Yeah, one, one trip. Let me see. Yeah, I mean, I, I've also I've also worked with, with school groups and, and youth groups, and you're right, they do definitely provide. Um, different different challenges in themselves. Um, I'd say one, one one trip which really stood out was probably my my first adult trip, which was I was asked by a company to go and lead an adult tour to um, Burundi, Rwanda, and Democratic Republic of Congo. So three countries right in the heart of Africa. And again, I'd never been to any of these countries. It was going to be my first time leading an adult group overseas and so obviously I was I was really quite apprehensive before the trip and it's probably also worth noting that the particular part of the uh, the Congo that we visit in is is you know one of the world's most fragmented inhospitable hostile regions it's a really really quite dangerous place in, in many ways and certainly the sketchiest, most dangerous place that I've been to. And so this was my this was my first trip. And you know, your question was where what's what have I really loved and what what have I said that I, I wouldn't want to do again? Well, I guess I can roll both of those things into this particular trip because I I actually ended up falling in love with with the Congo. I I loved the fact that it was so raw and it is stunningly beautiful. You've got a massive volcano called Nirugongo, which is a jungle-clad volcano, three and a half thousand meters. It contains the world's largest active lava lake, which is so huge that it, um, it, it's big enough for all the world's other active lava lakes to fit inside it. It's that big. And you can trek up to the top of this volcano. Just to give you a sense of scale, the the circumference of the crater rim is around four miles. So it is absolutely vast. And in the, in the foothills, and uh, well, the, the crater itself, the lava lake is about 200 meters across, so two football fields. And at night, it just turns the sky red, and you've got this bubbling, fierce lava pit way down below. And then at the foothills of, of this volcano, you've got Virunga National Park, which is one of the very few places in the world where you can find mountain gorillas and so you can go and trek through and, and find mountain gorillas in places where barely any, anybody goes 
But as I say, it is it is a very hostile place. There are a number of militia groups there in the region. Um, we did actually see young teenagers with, with AK-47s as we were driving through. We saw people hiding in the jungle with guns. It, it definitely felt raw and it felt edgy. And I'll, I'll tell you one particular story, which maybe sums up a, a not so fun side again of, of travel to some of these places. We were, we, we made the journey about four hours north to the northern tip of Rungu National Park, having traveled from the city of Goma, which, um, which is coated in, in the debris of, of, um, lava runs, which, which happened a few years ago. So you've got all this molten lava down in the city, but we traveled up to the northern point of this Virunga National Park into a very remote town with my small team. And we headed out into the jungle to go and find the, the, the mountain gorillas along with a, a park ranger and a, an armed guard. And as we got into the jungle, we found these gorillas, which was an incredible experience. And we knew that we knew that no other tourist groups had been there for about six months to this particular uh, area of the park. And we got into the jungle, saw the mountain gorillas, stayed with them within meters, watching them for an hour or so. And it was an absolutely incredible experience. But just towards the end of that hour, this immense thunderstorm rolled in. The weather just got really, really bad, very remote. And I actually had a slightly older guy on my team and as we were heading out of the forest he took a bad fall banged his knee and he was really struggling ended up helping him back to the to the car but by the time we got back there it was almost nightfall and our guard said thought there's there's no way we can drive back to the city at this time of night it's just far too dangerous on the streets uh, we had people who were getting flights the following day and they were saying can we you know can we get another guide but we were really in uh, the middle of nowhere here so we ended up having to stay in this local village there was one little guest house there and we we didn't have any food well we had very limited food we split that amongst us we had limited water they said it wasn't safe to go and walk around the village so we didn't and we hunkered down we split the food amongst us got a little bit of sleep and then when sunrise came around managed to make it back but what really brought home to us the the danger up there was about four days later seven park rangers were massacred in that very village and and that again really brought home to us the the danger up there and and what's actually happened in Virunga National Park now is they've implemented massive new security procedures to protect tourists and that, again, this was my this was my first adult tour, and uh, another another quite quite challenging experience, but one that I definitely learned from. And and for me now, it's it's figuring out what I'm comfortable with as a leader, which which places I'm comfortable taking taking people. And the more the more I lead groups into different countries, the more I learn about what I'm happy with, what risks I'm happy to take. And uh, so, again, that was a very rewarding, but also a massively educational trip for me. That That is one heck of a way to, uh, to, to earn your, your first 
trip with paying <laughs> customers and and I that's horrible about those park rangers. I remember that. That was It was. Wow. My goodness, man. I hate to hear it, that. It was tragic. Oh my goodness. And so I guess that just something that can happen in some of these more dangerous places and and so now do you, do you try yourself to to avoid situations that are that close to danger now? I do. I've definitely I've definitely, you know, figured out what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not happy with and kind of the the mantra that I go with now is you know, we we've got a world full of full of incredible countries in their own right. Some of them I wouldn't visit right now. A lot of, most of them I, I would. But for me, it's like timing. It's like climbing mountains. You've got to figure out when is the right time to visit this particular country. And there might just be a six-month period where it's safe to visit one one particular country. And you can go in and visit there safely. Um, but really, I've just got my ear to the ground a lot more and it's it's through meeting like-minded, very well-traveled people. It's through making local contacts. And it again, it like I said, it's like climbing mountains. It's all about timing. If the if the timing doesn't feel right, if things feel a bit edgy, I'm happy at this stage to say no. I'll go back another day. And I guess that was re- the real learning message that I took out of that particular trip to the Congo. Man, that's uh, I mean. We have a story in, uh, or not a story, we have a kind of a rule in my house. Uh, if it's if it's going to make a good story, we're pretty much willing to go through it. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's times where that sounds like the dumbest rule in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my wife will bring it up and she'll say, remember, you're going to tell me that right now. It's going to make a good story one day. Well, it never seems like it at the moment, does it? it? What's that? It it rarely seems like it at the moment. In the moment, I mean, absolutely. And so it it definitely (laughs) helps me. But you know, it sounds like these stories for you are probably some of your most cherished cherished possessions. Um, You know, most wonderful things you're probably the most proud of. I know for me, that's the case. Uh, Is that? I, we've talked about how that has its limits um, and how, you know, not all stories are worth going through. Mm. You know, if you were, if you would have been a victim in, in those um, yeah. a hostile situation like that, that would have been obviously not worth it. So, so if you, if you were to talk to somebody who wants to get into this, wants to get into mm. guiding, maybe world travel like this, what, what's some of the advice or some of the steps you could, you could say, take or avoid uh, early on? My advice would be you utilize other people, utilize experienced people. There are lots of forums out there that you can, you can, re- you can use to help research countries. I would say if you're going to somewhere where there is a higher level of risk, do that extra bit of research. Speak speak to people on forums. Find out if they've got any really good local contacts who you can use. Definitely take a local guide if if you can afford it. And um, you know that that's that's probably my biggest advice. Somebody who you can trust who's going to help you deal with situations in a hostile country. That is really really important. Um, and I guess if if somebody is completely new to travel you know get get your get your feet up get um you know just get used to traveling alone 
go to some go to some more well traveled places first. Just get a, get that kind of travel situational awareness, and and that's that's really a key word for me when I'm leading groups is understanding where the risks lie, and and really being aware of of your surroundings. And I think just travel and being, you know, just getting familiar with where scams might happen, who might want to make, you know, take advantage of you, figuring out how to get yourself out of situations, knowing how to deal with problems when you can't speak the same language. All of these things are going to help you a lot if and when you decide to push your travel to the next level. Um, and of course, utilize those those couple of websites, which I mentioned before. And make sure you're insured. <laughs> insurance also helps. I can Although I will say I've never had to use my travel insurance once, so um, I've got a I've got a clean record on that front. That's even more impressive, honestly, with some of these <laughs> trips and how many places you've gone and taken taken people. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah. Wow. I, I mean, I wish I could just continue talking because this is incredibly interesting um but but i would like to ask what's on the horizon for you what do you've got looking forward to in the next year or so well i've got i've got a few a few more interesting expeditions that i'll be leading um in two weeks time i'm going to be flying out to zambia botswana and namibia leading a 25-day expedition there that's for a, a young school team actually so that i'm really looking forward to that one i've then got trips lined up to Iran, Ethiopia, I'm going back to Somalia for the second time, going to a fascinating little island called Socotra, which is a Yemeni island out in the Red Sea. It's a real jewel, really incredible. They call it the Galapagos of the Red Sea, but it's extremely hard to visit. Uh, it does look like, though, uh, we've, we've set up an expedition to go there. Uh, I've also got another trip lined up to Sierra Leone and Liberia. Um, so th- those are all jobs for me which which i feel you know very 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 privileged to say in amongst all that i would like next year in 2020 to line up a couple of personal challenges um so not leading teams but going out on my own or with a friend to to take on a couple of more ambitious challenges which yeah really just to test myself and see see how i'm getting on in terms of my skills and my expedition knowledge and so I've got a couple of exciting trips up my sleeve, which I'm still I'm still in the planning stages, but for sure in 2020 I, I plan to do a couple of big exciting expeditions. Uh, so nothing you can share right yet. When I know that it's certain, and I know that <laughs> I'm committed to it, it'll be out in the w- wide world, and I'll be doing it for sure. But uh, I like I like to make sure it, it's planned for. And um, once I've once I've committed to something, it's happening. And, uh, and as I say, whoever's whoever's following my my progress will know about it. All right. Well, speaking of which, um, you know, go ahead and share. I'd love to hear how people can follow you, uh, your website, uh, how they can become a customer if they'd like, and also um, share anything else you were wanting to share during the interview. Yeah. Well, people, I'm. Um, on, I am on social media, mainly on Instagram. I'm pretty rubbish at social media, so I could do with a, a few more people coming, connecting with me, a few more like-minded people. I'm too busy traveling and um, not not on them enough, but I do love love the atmosphere on, on Instagram. So you can come and find me at Ollie underscore France. Uh, come and say hi. Definitely love to connect with more adventurous people. Um, there's also my website, oliverfrance.com. 
and um, you can you can check that out. I've got my first book up there, which details my journey from Hong Kong to Istanbul, which contains lots of trials and tribulations from being detained and uh, having more fun around minefields and avalanches and sneaking into Tibetan festivals and all kinds of mad stories just in the similar vein to what I've shared already. And I also do a little bit of public speaking about my adventures and and leadership in, in hostile places, which I'm really enjoying at the moment. I've just got back from a trip to Croatia speaking at a conference there. So definitely, if there's anybody listening to this who's organized an event, give me a shout. But uh, yeah, just anybody come and connect. I'm easy to find. Search my name and, uh, and you'll find me. Yeah, you've got a you've got a unique name, at least to me. I like it. it flows nice, yeah. all of friends. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ollie, I I really appreciate you being on the show again. I know that was a different host at that time, and and uh, yeah, we might have repeated some of the same things, and I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, I'll be happy to plug all those uh, links. Uh, you plug your book, and also. Um, yeah, anything else we talked about. And some of those websites, too, that you mentioned, if you don't mind sending those over to me, I'd yeah. love to share that because I think that'd be Absolutely. valuable to a lot of our listeners. Yeah, totally. All right. Yeah. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, Mason, all right. and all the best to you and your listeners. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, have fun in all your travels this year. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Mason. All right. Bye. Well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to us that you want to spend your time with us. If you'd like to help us further, please just leave us a review on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your friends about us. You can become a patron, a supporter of the show for $5 a month at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. And if you know somebody that would make a good guest, reach out. We're always looking for good adventure and outdoor stories. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. Athletic Brewing makes the best non-alcoholic craft beer. Go to their website at athleticbrewing.com and use the code in our show notes to save 15% on your first order. After all this adventure talk, if you're needing some gear yourself, but you need some advice before buying, Go to BackpackTribe.com where you can ask questions to the owners who have experience with all the gear as well as all of it for sale right there on their website.